outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 116. Today in the show, we're joined by outdoor writer Steve Bartilla for an incredibly fascinating deep dive into the strategies and insights that have led to his very impressive whitetail success. Welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. Like I just mentioned, today we're joined by Steve Bartilla again. He was with us early on in the podcasting years back in 2014. Um, But Steve's going to come on today and talk about some really interesting things that I recently read about in his book, Big Buck Secrets. Um, Steve is a longtime outdoor writer, frequent contributor to magazines like North American Whitetail and Deer and Deer Hunting. He's the author of, I think, four different books, uh, including, like I just mentioned, Big Buck Secrets, which really is a re- one of my one of the most enjoyable reads I've had in the hunting world in, in quite a while. So that's going to be the game plan. We're going to dive into a whole wide breadth of topics related to deer hunting, managing deer, habitat improvements for deer, public land hunting. Um, it, it's going to be super interesting. But before we get to that, really quickly, Dan, my co-host extraordinaire, You've got a few updates, right? Some some new things going on in your hunting world that we should probably touch on before we call Steve? Mark, I planted and finished, well, I shouldn't say finished, but I planted my very first food plot. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you did it. <laughs> That's awesome, man. That's my, exciting. My, my buddy has a, a like a riding lawnmower. It's a bigger riding lawnmower. Um I hit up someone I knew who had something called a roto hoe. It's uh, it's not a tiller, but if you go over the ground enough time, it really tears the dirt up. I got that bra- those brassicas that you sent me. Um, I got those in. I got the lime uh, put down, and uh, and uh, then I I don't I didn't have a cultipacker, so I just took that same um, riding lawnmower and wrote, drove over top of everything that I just planted and. Uh, the only thing I have left to do is fertilize it, but hey, I got a food plot in. That's awesome. That's a good feeling, isn't it? I tell you what, 
it, now, granted, I haven't checked to see if anything's sprouting yet or if it's grown or anything like that because that's kind of important. But <laughs> when, I, when I was done with it, I felt like a man. I felt like, <laughs> look at what I have done. Uh-huh. And, and now the next thing, if you're at all like me at least, after I've, after every food plot I plant, I just obsessively watch the weather now, just praying for rain. Right. Right, have you found yourself doing that yet? Yeah, I did. Uh, fortunately, uh, the night that – so I finished it uh, last Friday, and the next day it rained. Um, and we've had like two, three, two or three uh, other rainstorms since then. So uh, the ground had moisture in it going in when I planted, and uh, we've had plenty of rain since then to uh, help stabilize it. So I'm uh, I'm pretty happy. What about what about your jungle that we talked about? <laughs> well, it's still kind of a jungle. It's been. <laughs> Dude, I cannot even tell you what a debacle this whole thing has been. So on the bright side, I did get my on this property. I've got two main sections of food plot, kind of three, but the whole back section is now planted and done. So I feel really good about that. I just happened to be back there working on some stands yesterday, I think it was, and it's germinating and looking good and lots and lots of little fresh brassicas popping up. So that's in good shape. But on the front food plot, you know, where I had that jungle issue, it's been a disaster. So I, you know, Right after I got back from out west, I went out there and sprayed it all down again. So I drove over it with a four-wheeler with a sprayer and sprayed it all down. And then I called a friend who does some food plot stuff and asked if he would come out with his brush hog and mow it. Well, he wanted to do that. He can't do that. But then he said because I had ran it all over with my four-wheeler, all the vegetation was knocked down too low for him to really do anything with the mower. Right. So he said, I can't do it right now. So that was last week. I'm like, son of a gun. So now what am I going to do? So I then said, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna wait a few more days. And then I'm just going to rent a brush hog on my own and do it myself. So two days ago, or maybe no, it was yesterday, I got I rented a kind of self-propelled walk-behind brush-cutting mower. You know one of those things? Mm-hmm. Um, and I rented it, drove into town, picked it up, picked it up, got a trailer, brought it all the way back to my property, and I tried to get it to start, and it won't start. Oh, Jesus. And so it had like an electric start. So I try to get the electric start. It won't start. I keep messing with it. They gave me a jump pack just in case. So I tried jumping it. I can't get it to jump. So then I try the pull start, you know, pulling the cord, trying to get it to start that way. Can't get it to start. So I spent like 35 minutes trying to dick around this thing, trying to do all these different things to get it to work. I'm looking on YouTube. Like, am I doing something wrong with the <laughs> jump pack? Or so I'm looking at like frequent issues with this brush cutter, all this kind of stuff. I still can't find anything online. I call back to the company, the place where I rented it. I'm saying, hey, I don't understand. I don't know why it's not working. And the guy was kind of a dick. He's just like, he's like, well, put it on the starter stud. And I'm like, I did it. He's like, well, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, dude, get, like, oh, I was, I was, I was mad. You should have seen <laughs> it. Got no gas in it. Yeah, my wife was watching for part of it, and like, I, I was cussing and kicking and like pissed, <laughs> and. Then I called another friend who's better at mechanical things than I am and asked him, like, what other things could I possibly do? Because I did not want to, like, have this whole thing, like, not be able to get done. I had to get this stuff done. I went through the whole rigmarole going into town and renting this stupid thing and dealing with these jerks at this place who made me feel stupid. Even before, when I was picking it up, they were saying stuff to me. Like, he didn't like the way I backed my truck up to the trailer or how I, I don't know. Like he just really got on my nerves. Were you wearing a flat build hat? <laughs> no, I, I was wearing I was wearing work boots, jeans, and a t shirt. I, I looked like a good old farm boy. Okay, good because you know some of those guys they're they're pretty judgmental. 
I, you know, honestly, I was, I was like, I better make sure not to wear like my little Chaco mountain man sandals. <laughs> <laughs> These guys will really think I'm a joker. <laughs> but even though I looked the part, they still must have thought I was an idiot because they treated me like it at least. Um, so I already was upset about that. Then the stupid thing won't work. So now I had to call back. I feel like an idiot because I'm calling back. He makes me feel like even more of an idiot. Now I'm even more pissed. Spend another hour trying to figure out how to work it because I don't want to bring it back. And then say I couldn't get it to work. And then they start right away and said, well, we just got to start. What were we doing? But long story short, I spent like two and a half hours messing around with this stupid thing. Finally was like, forget it. I'm going back, demanding my money back, and dropping this piece of shit off. And that's what I did. I went back. I was mad. I told them I wanted my money back. And then they went out there and we're going to start to take it off the trailer. And they couldn't start it either. So. Aha. I felt better about that, at least. <laughs> He's like, well, I don't understand why I can't get started. I'm like, well, I don't even care right now. I'm just glad you didn't because <laughs> I would have been really mad if you started it right off the bat. <laughs> but the, the, the moral of this story is that I still didn't get this stupid thing mode. Oh, but now, my, you know, Corey, my buddy Corey and I are going to try to go in on renting a tractor, mower, and disc. And he's putting in his first food plot, so we're going to try to rent it maybe tomorrow or the next day, go get his food plot fixed and then bring it up to my place and get this one done. And if I can do that with a tractor, that'll do the job real quick. So good luck with all that. Thank you. Thank you. But, uh, I put up a new ground blind on this future food plot to cover South and Southwest winds, which is something I've never been able to hunt this food plot on before. But, um, but because I now know that Holyfield is coming out to this food plot on those wind directions, or he was at least last year, I wanted to get something in there. So I'm set up for that. I tweaked a new tree stand on the back side of this farm based on some spring scouting, so I'm feeling good about that. Um, I cleared out lanes for another tree stand yesterday. Um, so work's getting done, man. The final projects are getting done. That's right. I'm excited. That's right. I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. Thank you, sir. Guess what? What? Two weeks from tomorrow. I'm be westbound and down. No, dude. I'm sorry. One week from tomorrow. One week. Jeez, holy crap. One week from t- one week from tomorrow. Wow. You better get it together. Isn't that crazy? I got some bad news on that front. Uh oh. Yeah, this is a bummer. So the main piece of public land that I was planning on hunting out there. Right. Half of it was state land. Half of it was block management land. Block management land is private land that's open to public hunting out there. Yep. Um, and that every year that stuff has to get renewed. Mm-hmm. Well, August 15th was the time frame that the new renewal status is updated in the books. And that whole piece of block management land that I was planning on hunting is not in the program anymore this year. Uh-oh. How many acres was that? Oh, hundreds. Hundreds. It was um, the state land is just this little piece of river bottom ground, so it's mm-hmm. cover. It's like bedding cover, and then the block management next to it was all the crop fields, and fence rows and fingers that go, excuse me, that go out into it. So that was my food source hunting. That was my evening hunting spot, and then my morning hunting spot was going to be on the state land. So now I don't have the evening spot. All I have is the bedding cover spot. Right. So now I'm kind of scurrying around trying to find another decent opportunity i i don't i can't i have not found another good food source that's open to the public in that area that was my one good food source so i might just be stuck hunting some of this transition and bedding cover and hoping i can get in there without spooking deer i've got a couple spots like that um but i was really hoping i'd be able to have this lush green alfalfa field to hunt over like you see uh most people hunting out in montana right, right. so 
that's you know one more obstacle to try to overcome. But we'll well, figure it you'll out. figure it out. You'll yeah. figure it out. We will. So it'll be fun. And I can't believe it. Starting a week from now. So that said, my friend, we we wanted to try to keep this intro kind of short because um, we're gonna have a long, interesting conversation with Steve. So. Let's take a break now for a quick thank you and word from our sponsors at Sitka Gear, and then we'll give Steve a call. So, as mentioned, we need to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their longtime support of this podcast. And today's Sitka story comes from Sitka employee John Barklow. And John shared a story with me of an aha moment that actually happened for his friends when they saw John having success on their shared deer hunting property while they were not. So here's John explaining exactly what happened not because i'm a better hunter by any means but because i've been able to stay on stand longer uh, i've been the only one that ends up killing a buck the last three years and so they've been asking me they're like how are you able to sit all day you know i mean we we know you're you're stubborn but but and i said guys it's it's not because i'm tougher than you by any means it's because i have the right gear and they're like there's no way you can sit there in those few layers because I don't look real bulky and they do they've got seven layers nine layers and they're like there's no way you can sit there with what you have on all day comfortable and I said well it's it's happening I mean the proof's in the pudding right I mean not to say my you know my feet or my hands on occasion won't get cold but I am able to stay there stay engaged in the hunt um, stay involved in what's going on and then be able to because I'm not bulked up, when the opportunity arises, able to shoot accurately. And so finally I got my one, actually both of them I guess now, um, to convert, so to speak. And I got them some pieces. And so this last year they started wearing it. And I mean the first day they came out of the field and they're like, my God, I had no idea. Like I had no idea the advantage you had. And that advantage? Well, believe it or not, both of his friends got shots at great bucks this past year. Coincidence? Maybe. But maybe not. So if you'd like to learn more about the Sitka Gear Advantage, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get back to the show. All right, we're here now with Steve Bartilla. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Hey, thanks, guys. And uh, it's sincerely my pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, we um, we were just talking a minute ago about how much great feedback we got from our audience when you joined us back, I think it was 2014. It was pretty early on in the show. I think it was episode 22, and now we're on like episode 116 or 17 or something like that. So really wanted to get you back on here to talk about, you know, a lot of the different things maybe that we touched on last time but in greater depth and a lot of new things too. Um, but before we get any further, I think one of the things we touched on last time when we talked back in the summer of 2014 was how busy you were with summer prep leading up to the season. And now here we are again, just before the hunting season, right here before we need to have everything done. I'm just curious, how are things going this year? Are you still scrambling around trying to get a lot of stuff done, or do you feel pretty good this year with how things are set? Um, you know, this is one of those rare and magical times where I'm doing pretty good. Wow. Um, yeah, I actually, uh, actually, everything clicked into place this year so far. I shouldn't say any of this stuff, but, um, because, <laughs> of course, everything's going to fall to heck now. But, <laughs> uh, here, between, as 
I think you know I do some long-term management for a handful of of you know clients that pay me to manage their grounds for them. The the growing weather this year in my areas of Wisconsin and Illinois and uh, Minnesota has been frankly fantastic. He couldn't ask for anything better. Um, if in those areas, of course, weather changes from spot to spot, but in those areas, if your food pots aren't doing good this year, you you might want to go pick up a book on food pots because it doesn't <laughs> get any better than that. <laughs> yeah, it has been good. I, I actually just got out to check one of my food plots yesterday when I was doing some stand work and um, that one is looking very nice. I, I've got another situation that isn't so good, so I still have some food plot work just simply from dealing with issues with weeds, unfortunately, but uh, so far sure. so good. It's well, a good feeling. The, the thing I've come to grips with in more recent years is we're not cash cropping. A few weeds, weeds are deer feed grass i hate but broad leaves i really don't mind them that much so i I know i used to i used to sit there and obsess about my clover plots looking like golf course greens well if they've got a few weeds in them the deer really don't care yeah it's true i've I've melted on that a little bit and and the other really nice thing is and this is going to sound like a lot but i think i'm down to only about 30 stands left to prep that puts me so far in front of the game. <laughs> that does sound like a lot. <laughs> yeah. I have I mean, six. Just, oh, I'm sitting here getting all set to brag up on. I have less than 30, 30 stands left to do, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. That's not going to sound that great to most people. Yeah. Yeah, that... um, but I was somewhere around, uh, somewhere flirting with 250 this year, so oh, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. Wow. Yeah. Wait, I, I'm sorry, but are these these 200 plus stands stands that you hunt, or are they for clients? Both. Oh, okay. Quite frankly, I got you. Um, a lot. Quite honestly, a lot of them will never get hunted this year by anybody. Um, I'm a very firm believer in when Mister Big is telling me that he is ripe to kill. I want to be able to get in there and or put a client in there without giving Mr. Big any reason not to keep doing what he's doing. So I prep, I tend to, well, every year I know darn well that over half the stands I prepped will never get climbed up into that year. But if I have a need, not having to go in there during season and doing any scouting or any stand prep work, it's, it's, really a big deal in my opinion i think that gives me a heck of an advantage to the point where yeah when it gets to be well the, the, the first day when you're dealing with a whole bunch of stands i don't know about you guys they're actually young and in shape <laughs> me i'm a fat broken down old man um <laughs> i get done with that well the next morning after the first day you'd swear somebody drove spikes through my upper thighs because yeah. i mean they just <laughs> so I can't say I can't say that first day or two that I I feel this way, but after the first day or two, once I start rounding into shape, I think the trade-off is well worth it. You know, the extra work versus the ability to slip in without having to do a darn thing. That buck has no clue you're there until it's too late. That, that is a big 
a very important thing if you can pull it off. I'm going to get off on one tangent real quick, if you don't mind. I do the exact same thing on on public ground. On public ground in the spring, I go in and prep all my stands that I think I might hunt. Now, you can't leave... You can't leave these stands on the public ground I hunt. Um, You can during season, but not during the off-season. You have to check the regulations, obviously, because state ground is different than county ground, which is different than Corps engineer ground, and so on. But even though I can't leave those stands in the woods, there's absolutely no reason I can't prep that tree, hang that stand, um, be ready to hunt, take it down with me. So now, when it comes time to actually hunt on Halloween, I can get in there an hour and a half before first light and actually set up that stand because all I have to do is put the sticks up, slap the stand in, and I'm ready to hunt. Yeah, definitely better than having to do all the prep right there in the dark before the hunt and make noise and deal with all that kind of stuff. Being being overprepared, I think, is never a bad problem to have, right? It, it, yeah, yeah, as long as it doesn't drive you completely nuts, you would. Yeah. So, so Steve, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you back on here in the show was that I recently read your book, Big Buck Secrets, and it was really one of the most enjoyable hunting books I've read in a long time. I really took a lot from it, and I wanted to kind of dive into a handful of different concepts you talked about, and one of those first pieces that I want to touch on really relates, I think, right in line with what you're already talking about here. One of the things you touched on in the very beginning was this concept of pushing the envelope. Can you can you walk us through what you mean by that when you say that one of your most important things to do when you're figuring out your hunting strategy is to, is to push the envelope? What does that mean for you? Well, for me, it doesn't mean doing stupid, risky things. Going back to the public ground, for instance, um, the idea of what, what would probably pop into most people's heads by pushing the envelope there would be aggressively scouting, calling, rattling, all that type of stuff. Um, that, to me, that's not being aggressive. It's hamstringing yourself. You, know, you, have to, you always have to ask yourself, how did the bucks in these areas get to maturity? You know, when you're talking about any heavily hunted location, they generally didn't get there by being stupid. Now, they either got exceptionally lucky or they are very wary. Now, so the last thing in the world I want to do is go ahead and uh, go ahead and increase the risk of educating them to the fact that they're being hunted in this location. I, getting off on a slight tangent, my whole approach to hunting public land is find the areas that no one else hunts. You do that, it's a mini sanctuary, and that's where you're going to find the majority of your mature bucks. Um, but if you go ahead and draw attention to yourself, no, you just, you just blew the gig because those bucks are so dang wary, it's not even funny. Um, what I, applying it to that scenario, what I'm saying, talking about more about pushing the envelope is having three, four stands already prepped well before season ever starts. You know, in areas that if there's a good mature buck you know, on that public ground, on those various public grounds, that, you know what, odds are really high this is going to be a great place to try to kill them because nobody else goes here. Okay. And then taking it a step further, having 
three, four different public ground spots already scouted out and set up. You know, that's more along the lines of what I look at as, as pushing the envelope. Stacking as many odds as a person reasonably, rationally can in their favor without breaking any rules or doing anything overly stupid. Yeah. So what are some of those different ways you can stack the odds in your favor? If maybe we continue with this example with the public land situation, you know, other than prepping numerous other locations, what are some of the other little things that you're paying attention to in that scenario that help you push the envelope? Uh, great question. One of one of the most productive public ground, public land stands I had for about five years running was <clears throat> a strip of mature timber between two really thick clear cuts, clear cut regrowths. Um, they were using this strip of mature timber as a funnel when they go through to in their normal travels because, I mean, a good way to look at things is if you think it'd be a pain in the butt for you to walk through something with a stand on your back, you know what, that, that buck with that 18, 19, 20-inch inside spread, it's probably a pain for him to walk through as well. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of reasons why they'll go into those thick clear cuts. Oftentimes they live in the dark. They, their daylight core areas are within them. But when they're just trying to get from point A to point B, rather than walk through the middle of that thing, they're going to take the path of least resistance. But that funnel area there, so you have natural funnel, um, just because of the thick stuff on both sides and the approximately 100-yard wide strip of mature timber. I don't know about you guys, but I can't cover a 100-yard wide strip of timber with a bow. So what I did there, each spring, I'd go in and I'd pick up every darn decent-sized fallen branch I could possibly find, and I'd create a little blockade each spring and then fixed it up the, the, uh, the following springs where, you know what, I can't cover a 100-yard wide thing, uh, funnel, but I can cover a 40-yard white funnel. So I went ahead and blockaded it down to 40 yards. You know, those little, to me, hunting is all about stacking as many little things in your favor as you can. Whenever, I think we are awesome, flat-out awesome, at getting out there and scouting our tails off, finding that one spot. That one spot that is, this is the spot that I believe that I am going to intercept Mr. Big during legal shooting hours. We hang the stand, we walk away with our chest out, but I think we miss a critical step. And that is, okay, this is the spot. My stand is up in that tree. We're, we're so much farther ahead than we were before we did this. But now, what can I do to make this location better? Hmm, that, that tree, I kind of stick out like a sore thumb in it a little bit, but it's the only tree that would work. So let's cut some branches and go ahead and attach it to the tree and make it so it has cover. Go ahead and put some on the back of the tree so we've got back cover. You know, maybe put a couple in the very outside of uh, outside the platform so we have a little bit of front cover. Now all of a sudden I can move. You know, and let's say 60 yards up from the stand, that trail splits. One goes off to the left, and then the other one to the right where we w that we're covered. You know, and for whatever reason, that's not the spot we need to set up at. We need to set, set up where we are. Well, go ahead and lay a couple branches across the trail you don't want them to use. 
Does that mean every deer now is not going to use that trail? Heck no. But all you need is the one deer that you're trying to kill to do what you want. And I think it's worthwhile. And then odor control, um, targeting, targeting specific stands for a reason, not just because mm, this is a really good stand, but this happens to be a really good stand for this phase of season. And we're in that phase of season now, so that's when I want to hunt it, when the odds are the highest, that that stand's going to pay off. Or something as simple as what we were talking about originally, having a whole bunch of different stands up so that, hmm, he's not supposed to be back in here. But twice, I and my buddies have seen him back in there going through this area. He's not supposed to be doing this during early season. He's supposed to wait until peak pre-rut, but dang it, he's doing it now, so I'm going to go kill him. You know, to just being able to to jump when the when the bucks are screaming, waving their arms, saying, hey, you idiot, come here and kill me. <laughs> Having everything in place makes me look a heck of a lot smarter. Yeah. I've yet to see the big buck yell at me to, to have him come kill me, but I'm, I'm hoping that happens here soon because I would, <laughs> I would love that situation. Um, but It will. Trust me, it will. It take, I'm not going to protect. Don't take what I just said wrong. That's not normal. It's not. But there's been, geez, six, seven bucks off the top of my head over the years that were literally jumping up and down, waving their arms and saying, "You idiot! I am ripe." And uh, to all the, you got to do is show up and not blow the shot. And yeah. heck, I've even had a couple of them where I did blow the shot, but still they had such a death wish that <laughs> I ended up taking. Those are the kind of bucks but you like no, to hunt. No, that is, it's, it's fun and humbling at the same time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'll tell you what. I don't care what anybody out there says. You know, if they're sitting there trying to tell your listeners that they never, they never make a mess of things out in the deer woods, they never blow shots, they never do anything stupid, either they're, I hate to use this strong language, but either they're a liar or they are a really bad hunter. Yeah. who just never had the opportunities for things to go wrong. I, I don't care who you are, how much you practice, any of that stuff, things are going to go wrong out there sometimes. It's, yeah. just, it's part I, of what makes it sweet when they go right. Yeah, I, I think that's how me and Dan have made uh, our, our little <laughs> mark in, in, the, in the industry is just simply by the fact that we make so many mistakes. <laughs> that might be the one thing we have going for us. To this day, the most popular clip I have ever filmed is me absolutely blowing a gift wrap shot at a uh, at a, about a 160-inch eight-point that I was doing a tip for back in the days that uh, before Double Bull Archery sold for their television show on calling and rattling with decoys and ground blinds, and I had no no fantasy of actually calling anything in. I look up and there, oh, geez, there's about 160-inch, 8.50 yards away staring at me. Wow. Oh, man, this guy, I wasn't going to film any hunts. I was just filming a tip, but, wow, i got to get this on film. <laughs> how often do you go ahead, how often are you doing a tip on calling, rattling decoys and ground blinds and actually get to kill a 160-inch buck? <laughs> I mean, this stuff doesn't happen. I, whoa, this is awesome. Here he comes, I'm filming, I'm filming, I'm filming, and all of a sudden he's about 10 yards away from the decoys. Okay, well, something's going to go down here, one way or another. You know, either he's going to bolt or he's going to...
going to crash that decoy, and then he's going to bolt. I got to shoot this thing. Something that I wasn't planning on doing with with a camera. So I shift him to the back of the frame, come to full draw, 30 yards. Let the arrow fly. He was 20. He ducked the arrow, and it went right over his <laughs> uh... But as But as an added bonus, the farmer had spread manure on the alfalfa field the day before. So you got to watch that arrow skip forever across that field <laughs> in the background. I went ahead and turned the camera back on me, picked up the rangefinder, and said, new tip of the day, rangefinders, use them. They actually serve purpose. Oh, that's brutal. I got a random, I got a random question for you, Steve. Yeah. Have you ever, you know, you mentioned something about, you know, trying to, you know, close the distance on that pinch point, you know, from 100 yards to 40 yards. But have you ever purposely went into an area to screw it up maybe or lay down scent or make noise or bump a deer in order to try to kill them in another location? I can honestly say I've never tried it. I think okay. that's a great idea, and that's kind of what I mean by pushing the envelope. Right. When taking this full circle back to the original question that I took us way off on ta- a tangent on, um, you know what? When I was a kid, and you guys are young enough that you can probably relate to this as well. When when I was a kid, I used to do all sorts of dumb things out hunting. You know, I'm not talking about dangerous things, but just dumb. There's no way that's going to work. Every once in a while, they work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you if you have nothing left to lose, you know it's one thing if you're talking about managing your property and what you're trying to do is you're trying to you're trying to split your efforts as much between killing deer and raising them. That's a different story. But if you're just out there hunting and something isn't working for you, try something anything because unless something changes, it's not going to work. You know, and that is something that I wouldn't. I would applaud somebody for trying. I can't promise it's going to work or not, but I would applaud somebody for at least trying. We've lost so much. We have, we're we're in a time where we're both blessed and cursed with information. There's so much information on how you hunt mature deer or whitetails, period, that we tend not to try the -the off-the-wall stuff anymore. And that's, that is something that I think is kind of being lost because I can't speak for you guys, but I'll tell you what, I learned a heck of a lot more from my failures than I ever do from my successes. Yes, very true. Now, Steve, was this you? I, I remember hearing someone mention this, and I can't remember if it was you or somebody else, but have you ever used a trail camera, like set up across the field, one of you, like maybe a flash camera or whatever type that you think maybe deer do get spooked by, and then that would force them to possibly come to your side of the field where you're actually hunting. Was that something you've done yes. before? Okay, so that's... I do that often. Um, I protect. I particularly do them with the with the red flash, the red flash or uh, or standard flash cameras. Because what I've found is, you can never say. When it comes to deer hunting, in my opinion, you can never say never or always. You know, there's exceptions to everything. We're just playing odds. You know, more most often, that red flash or white flash is not enough to actually spook that buck off of that property. You know, on a, what it what he does if he doesn't like it, most of them, I would go so far as to say most don't care. Okay? But there is that percent that. They do not like that. It is not natural. It 
it creeps them out, for lack of a better term. Um, <clears throat> so they tend to just shift their activities away from triggering the camera. And yeah, exactly. There's a couple, a couple different locations that pop to mind right now that I've got older red flash cameras set up on the opposite side of the food source 100% just to nudge those ones that don't like it a little bit closer to the stand. Hmm. It's that type of thinking outside the box stuff that that I was getting to that I, th I think we've kind of lost. I mean, we've, we're, we preach so much that you can't spook deer. You, know, you can't do you spook deer. It's the kiss of death. Well, in some situations it is, but in some situations you can use it to your advantage a little bit. Now, these deer are far from turned inside out spooked, but, you know, they, the cameras make them a little nervous. So let's avoid them. Hmm. If they're going to avoid them, might as well put them in areas that we can't cover. Yeah. That way they concentrate in more in the areas we can. It's kind of right in line with the whole, like we were talking about stacking the odds. That's one more way to stack the odds for a specific stand to push them a little bit closer in that location. Um, mm -hmm. And another one of these odd stackers um, that I've that I've heard you talk about in the past is using scrapes or created mock scrapes to do the same kind of thing, placing mock scrapes near a tree stand location to just potentially give you a slightly better chance for a shot there. Can you talk about how you use that? Um, what I what I do more often than not on on stands. I mean, we all know, including most of your listeners. There's lots of areas that if you set up on a wide open field, a wide open fresh clear cut that hasn't regened yet, you know, anything wide open, odds are you're not going to kill Mr. Big. He's not coming out now in Iowa, in Illinois, in northern Missouri, in certain areas of Wisconsin. Sure, you, you can, but it's not like that everywhere. Okay. Um, when I am hunting the edge of an opening, what I'll do is I'll, nine times out of ten, I'll go ahead and cut a tree that when planted, when planted with a post hole digger, um, about three feet into the ground is going to stick out like a turd in a punch bowl and have licking branches right at nose level of these deer. Uh, scrapes are essentially the whitetail world's equivalent to human billboards. They're meant to communicate information to as many other deer as you can. When that scrape tree happens to be sitting out, oh, 15, 20 yards into that wide open clear that wide open fresh clear cut, that meadow, that clover field, that alfalfa field, you know, pick corn field, soybean field, anything open like that. You know, it's like a neon sign saying, come on over here and make a scrape because it's going to stick out like a sore thumb. You know, so it's one of those little things that you can do that, again, just stack the odds. The there's really no great trick to it. The one, the things I would say is that if you're going to use, if you're going to be hunting here long term, you know, not just this year, it's good if you use hardwoods. Simply because I'm lazy, I don't want to go ahead and plant this tree every single year if I don't have to, and I can get three to four years of use typically out of a, out of a hardwood versus a softwood. 
um, and then point those licking branches back towards the stand. So now, when Mr. Big comes in to work it, you know, he's giving you a good shot angle, and he is averting his attention away from you, so you don't have anywhere near as much of an issue of coming to full draw, taking your time, settling the pin, letting the arrow fly. Do you see any? Do you see any um, issue with? a dead licking branch. So let's say you put one up in the summer or last summer even. Now you still have this branch hanging out over there. Do deer prefer a live tree branch for this type of situation versus that dead one? Like I guess I'm wondering, should I be putting a hole in the side of this tree so I can put in a new licking branch every fall or something like that? I've actually contemplated doing that for the simple reason that if I just have to put a licking branch in the side of this thing every year, um, that's less work for me. And when you're dealing with, I mean, I'll probably plant 50 or so scrape trees this year. Well, you know what, if I can eliminate having to plant, you know, 40 of them because I have poles out there with holes in it, I think that would be a good thing. I haven't ever tried that, though. The only difference that I've seen in in usage from bucks is when you do some. When I did something stupid and actually trying to use a hawthorn tree, well, they didn't like rubbing up against the thorns that much. Um, I only made that mistake once, and I was desperate at the time for something, and that was the only thing I could come up with. And it did not work. I completely wasted my time. The other thing is, is the in general, with, to within a reasonable extent at least, the bushier that scrape tree is, the more activity it tends to tends to uh, suck in over to to it just because it sticks out more. But I've got I've got plenty a glut of pictures and videos of bucks working licking branches that are three years old, dead as a doornail, and it doesn't seem to matter to them. That's good to know. Uh, on this topic of scrapes, it reminded me of an article I read of yours recently. Um, I think the article was titled something about wasting their time or talking about deer time wasters or something like that. And, and the kind of the gist of the article was some different things you can incorporate onto a hunting property to potentially keep a buck on your farm during daylight a little bit longer. And one of the things you mentioned were using scrapes or mock scrapes. Can you talk a little bit about this concept of time wasters and what people could possibly, you know, what actual examples that of those that might be? Sure. Well, that's that's a big one for people that both or can manage their habitat. You know, n- not everybody can. The overwhelming majority of people out there hunting probably are hunting like like, like I still do to this day to an extent, but like I grew up hunting, and that was getting permission from their uncle, getting permission from some neighbor lady, getting permission from God knows who. You go out there with a chainsaw in your hand, and you probably won't have permission the next year. <laughs> yeah. um, but if you can control your ground, oh, man, the games you can play are just almost obscene. Um, <clears throat> something as simple as, okay, during the off season, you're out there scouting, you figure out that Mr. Big is betting on this point and this point is one of the best things a person one of the things that helped me most in my evolution as a hunter is to get away from just being content with finding sign but trying to understand why that buck did this here 
What are the odds of him doing it again? You know, um, <clears throat> asking the why questions. You know, when you're finding these beds in the off season, squat down on the darn things. Squat down and look around and ask, okay, of all the places that Mr. Big could bed, why is he bedding in this location right here? You do that, you do that even 10 times and a pattern starts to emerge. Now, you see that they like, they like either being on the very edge of the thick, nasty stuff that one jump they're gone, or they like to have a very wide range of view, a very wide field of vision. So they can see virtually everything that's going on around them. And then, I'm not saying that the bucks always change their bedding locations based on wind direction, but when that wind happens to be coming over their backside now, now nothing's sneaking up from behind them, and they can see everything down below. Man, he's, he's bulletproof. And because of that, you'll find that the mature bucks on a property tend to bed in the same places year after year after year after year after year. Oh, he's dead, but here comes another one. Year after year after year, he's dead, but here comes another one after year after year because of all these advantages that that location gives them. Okay. So so you find that look, you know, and getting off on actually explaining a little bit better here, real easy way to determine between to stack the odds of being right in determining whether this is a family group bedding area or a mature buck is just playing the number and the sizes of beds. You find a bunch, you find three, four big beds, a couple small beds. Odds are those, that's your family group there. You find one or two big beds that are about the same size, especially if, uh, especially if there happens to be a rubber scrape in the area and then there happens to be a really big track in that bed. That's a pretty darn good that was a mature buck. But so once you start putting this stuff together and you figure out that, hmm, I can't swear I know what buck's going to be betting on this point this year, but I can almost guarantee it's going to be one of the big boys because it has so many advantages. Now, our food source is over to the west. If I go ahead and create about a, hmm, 10-yard wide opening, and I can do it with a chainsaw. Hey, a bulldozer would be awesome, but I can do it with a chainsaw, no problem. We can have stumps. We can go ahead and top seed some <clears throat> oat cereal rye or some clover right on top of the dirt, and it's going to grow, as I said to begin this. Remember, we're not cash cropping. We're just trying to give the deer a little bit of food. So I'll go ahead and create a little 10-yard wide uh, strip going halfway back to that bedding area. Then do a little edge feathering, which is hinge cutting, about a five-yard band on either side of that. Now, so now we get more sunlight in here. Well, when I'm cutting off those trees, I might as well cut them at about chest level. Cut them off that way, the ones that are in the plot, because now I can go ahead and I can nail a bunch of licking branches on that. So he's going from that point now down that trail, working his scrapes, going out to the neighbor's farm field. I can get in there about, oh, 50 yards off the line. Hopefully those scrapes slowed him down enough, so now he's coming past me, oh, five, ten minutes of shooting light left, which is, I'm still golden. But by the time he gets over to the neighbor's, when he jumps that fence to get out in that field, it's pitch dark. So it's, those are the types of little games 
that I play a ton on the managed grounds. Um, the more, in general, the more time you can get him to waste, especially when you're trying to, to raise bucks. They're not our bucks, but we can help them get to maturity. God love the people that got, and I'm being as sincere as I possibly could be, God love the meat hunters of the world. This stuff is supposed to be fun. They have every right to do that, but on my side of the fence, I have every right to dissuade Mr. Big from being over there during legal shooting light. Having a, Every time he works one of those scrapes, he's wasting anywhere from 30, 30 seconds to five minutes. Now, and so often, I mean, you guys know as well as I do, so often the difference between success and a thrilling close call is nothing but seconds. And if I can waste 15 more minutes of his time on my ground, I'm that much further ahead. And along those lines, some more of the things that I do is I try to, on my managed habitat, I try to divide it up. I, rather than, if I've got an 80, rather than go ahead and put one main food source in the place, I'm going to put four. I'll put four water sources on the place. I'll go ahead and try to make it so that I have at least four different areas of thick, nasty cover that the does like to bed in. So now, when Mr. Big, he doesn't even live on our place. Now, he lives over on, he lives over on the neighbors, but he's coming through to check does. Now, he doesn't just have to check one food source, one water hole, and one bedding area. He has to check four. And when he has to check four, he's wasting more time on our ground obviously giving us a better chance of killing him. I hope that kind of sort of answered your question a little bit anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, that's perfect. And it's it's interesting. Everything everything falls under this common theme of finding ways to stack those odds. And as we were talking about yeah. this, another thing that I've heard you talk about in the past came to mind again, which was kind of related to this whole habitat topic. If we have the ability to manage habitat or to at least control who hunts, our property, we can implement sanctuaries. Can you talk about how you think about sanctuaries and how you use them? Yeah, sanctuary, I will tell you right now, for as much press, for as much press and coverage on TV that food plots get, I, nothing, nothing makes a difference for more habitat out there than sanctuaries and it doesn't cost you a cent. It's the entire approach that I take to, to hunting public ground. You find those pockets that nobody else is going in. Guess where you're finding the mature deer? Guess where you're finding the most deer? In those pockets. Deer are no different whatsoever excuse me, than our dogs at home in that we can train them to accept virtually anything and we can train them to fear virtually everything and every single time we're going out in the woods hunting whether we're trying to or not we are training deer now most often we're training them to do things that are against our interests as hunting in hunt, as hunters you know in the sanctuaries are the exact reverse we're training them to do what's in our best interest the first thing I do is I go, well, first question, what is a sanctuary? A sanctuary, if you're going to use the purest definition, a sanctuary is an area that we never step foot in, period, end of story. I'm not a purist. 
I, I am scouting these sanctuaries during the off-season every year. You know, I will even put some tree stands up in those sanctuaries with the idea that, you know, going back to how many stands I hang, going back to the idea that I'm not hunting here. The only way I'm hunting here is if I have pictures of Mr. Big. I know Mr. Big is living on this ground. I believe he's living in my sanctuary. You know, by how do you know? You know because his picture at the food source every night happens to be between a half hour to an hour after dark. You know, and from the direction he's coming in. Hmm, he's coming in from the heart of this 80. Odds are he's not walking all the way across the 80 to get here. He's probably bedded back in that sanctuary there. When I just plain cannot get it done from the outside of the sanctuary, I will go in and hunt it once or twice the entire year, go in well before first light, and I'm planning on staying all day or killing. One of the two. Um, But as I said, I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to go into that sanctuary, and I'm not going to go into it for any other reason except for for on the off chance of hunting or... uh, tracking a deer during season okay. so to me a sanctuary is essentially an area that i try to stay out of during season as much as humanly possible um so then how do you go ahead and define a sanctuary well i think one of the biggest keys that a lot of people miss is the natural human reaction as hunters is you want to get as deep in the cover as you possibly can I mean, man, that's where Mr. Big's living, that's where I'm going to go, but how the heck do you get in there without alerting every single deer on the property that you're hunting them? How do you get out at the end of the day? If you're going to hunt the stand numerous times, you know, if this isn't just a one-shot deal, that is every bit as important as the individual hunts because far too many people go ahead and explode their property before the, before the rut even gets close. You know, which is why a lot of quote-unquote experts suggest a person shouldn't even start hunting until the rut. It's because they're trying to train the deer on their ground that they're safe. With a sanctuary, you can hunt that property hard the entire season and still get the advantages. The way you pull it off is anything that's high impact for getting in, getting out, or hunting, right off the bat, is a sanctuary in my mind. What I try to do is I try to design properties so that I mean, they vary from property to property, but in general, so I can go ahead and hunt the outsides effectively in a low-impact manner and leave most of the deer cover just plain alone. Just go into it during the off-season, do a little uh, improvement to improve the cover, that type of stuff. But during season, you know, you don't have to worry about me coming in there. You're safe here. While the neighbors, and this is a huge key, everybody, most everybody complains about the neighbors. If they only hunted like me, if they were only good hunters, if they only would have let that buck walk. Well, you know what? Those hunters, when you have a sanctuary, they're your best friends because they're trashing their ground. They're trashing their ground, and it does not take deer long at all to figure out I'm not being disturbed over here. So as season progresses, your deer numbers are actually climbing the more and more your neighbors are hunting. And at the same time, you're training them that, you know what, it's safe to move around on this property during the legal light. 
just like those public ground bucks, they realize that within that sanctuary, that area that's blocked off by that nasty ravine that nobody's willing to cross, over there, I can move just fine during legal shooting hours and don't have to worry about it. I just can't cross that ditch. Because over there, I move around during legal shooting hours. I'm smelling and seeing people like crazy. Now, we're doing the same thing on our properties. We're designing these areas that the bucks and the does and fawns all feel safe in, all are willing to move around during legal shooting hours, and then trying to set it up so we have little little staging plots right along the edges to hunt. Because there, in that little half-acre opening in the middle of the woods, Mr. Big is far more willing to step out during legal shooting light, especially when it's right on the edge of this area that he's never disturbed in. I got a quick question. Is that, do you have a, a different sanctuary for different wind directions? Because I have a, a property that a majority of the food is on the south side of the property. And depend, depending on the wind direction depends on where on the property you know, they bed. So, um, if I was to establish uh, a sanctuary on one part, do you feel that the deer would then come to that sanctuary, even though the wind may not be right for them to bed in that, in that area? It's You're stacking the odds for that to happen, but so many things, this is a really difficult part. I just got done, if you don't mind me giving myself a plug, um, I just got done writing a uh, habitat, habitat and deer management book um, that came out this past spring. It was the most challenging writing I've ever done in my life. I've went ahead and done this type of consulting work for right around, well, just over 25 years. But every single property is different. So, so making blanket statements about how this is how you do it in specific terms I'll tell you what, it's tough. Because on your ground, on your ground, it is entirely possible, based on what you're saying, heck, it's probable that the best thing you can do is that they have, they have numerous, that your, your deer have numerous areas on that property that they prefer bedding in. A lot of properties don't. As a matter of fact, most properties, you got one or two spots naturally where the deer really like to bed. And they're going to probably be bedding there no matter what the wind is because they don't have other alternatives. You know, when they do in a situation like that, I I tend to I I can't say I've ever set up specifically set up sanctuaries based for a given wind, but what I do is, man, I am always thinking about wind direction when it comes to entrance, hunting, and exit. And what I want to do as much as possible is I want my access to be along the property line. And I want my odors blowing into the neighbors when I'm heading out to the stand. I want my odors to be blowing into the neighbors while I'm on stand. I want my odors blowing towards neighbors when I'm leaving to go back to the truck. And by taking that approach, you're essentially setting up sanctuaries based off the wind direction because you're not hunting these other areas when you have those various winds, if that makes any sense at all. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So speaking about bedding areas, that brought me to uh, 
another really interesting thing I read about in your other book, This Big Buck Secrets, where you talked about some interesting ways that you can utilize knowledge about doe family groups to improve your hunting. In particular, you talked about how you can key in on dominant versus subdominant doe groups during certain parts of the year. Can you talk about that? Because that's something I've never heard about before and I thought was really interesting. Sure, and I should say, um, if you don't mind, before I answer that, that, the book that you're referring to, Big Buck Secrets, is actually the it's actually the final of a three-parter, or it's wrapping together. It's supposed to go ahead and wrap the three-part series together with a nice bow and tie it up and make it look all pretty. Um, that what you're describing there is not going to work everywhere. It's not. If you've got low doe number, if you've got low deer numbers, the habitat itself is not stressed. If you have healthy habitat, you know what? Your, your family groups on this property are not stressed. But what ends up happening when you're dealing with high deer numbers, and this happens whether you're dealing with medium, low, any type of deer numbers, period, um, is that there's a hierarchy to doe groups that is very similar to the hierarchy that occurs within buck groups. We, we've all heard about the dominant buck. That buck, that geese. Man, he strolls any and everywhere. All he has to do is give a sideways glance to the competition. They stuck, they stick their tail between their legs and go running for the hills. Now, um, <clears throat> the same thing plays out in a weird way in the doe area, in the doe groups, in that the healthiest doe groups out there, with especially if they've got a little bit of an attitude, are the most dominant doe groups out there. They're the ones that. They have the prime bedding spot because they'll drive the competition away. They have the prime, uh, the prime food source because if it's small, they're going to go ahead and drive the other doe groups away. You know, um, I should actually back up. Doe groups, family groups are nothing more, cons- generally speaking, they're nothing more than a matriarch doe. You know, that, that, that great-grandmother type, all her daughters, all her daughters' daughters, you know, and so on down the line. I mean, there's in high deer area, on high deer number areas, where you don't have a lot of hunting pressure on the doe groups. I mean, it's not uncommon to see a family group of more than 20 does, you know, along with their nubbin bucks and sometimes even year and a half old bucks. Okay. And now, so picture picture property with a whole bunch of deer, you know, a whole bunch of different doe groups. The healthiest, most aggressive doe groups are the dominant ones. The least healthy, smaller, more passive doe groups are the more submissive ones. So then, throw in overpopulation, where the habitat is being absolutely destroyed by deer, which is more habitat than we give it credit for, quite honestly. Uh, Well, your lower-rung doe groups, they aren't getting the nutrition because they don't have the best bedding areas. They don't have the best feeding areas. They're picking up the scraps that are left over. Now you have to tie one other factor into all this, and that is timing of breeding. In general, I am a very strong believer in photo period. I I do not believe in the moon theories in any way, shape, or form, and I can cite all sorts of studies that have been done on uh, um, roadkill fetal tissue where they backdate it 
And you know what? The majority of the does year after year after year after year after year are getting bred in the exact same amount of time according to those studies, regardless of the moon. But what does play a role into individual deer, individual doe estrus timing is the health of the doe. The healthier that prime age breeding doe is, the higher the odds are that she's going to come into estrus early. So, because the dominant doe groups have the best of everything, they tend to have the healthiest does. And they also happen to produce the first estrus does of the year. And then we can take it another step further and throw in the, the fawns. Fawn breeding in anywhere in the continental United States occurs virtually every year except for on very, very, very horrifically bad weather years. Okay. You deal with the UP of Michigan, you might be talking 1-2%, 5% on a normal year. You deal with Iowa, you deal with Kansas, you're talking, geez, you're talking as much as 70-80% of the dolphins will breed that first year. The timing on their breeding is based on them meeting physical and physiological thresholds. They, that their body must mature. Okay. Well, who tends to give birth to the does first, or the fawns first each year? The healthy does that got, <clears throat> that got bred earlier in the season. So they also tend to be the ones to have the doe fawns come into estrus first each year. So you can if you can follow, I mean, that, that's an, I know that's an awful lot to put together and follow. But if you can connect those dots, you can see why, hmm, that cold stretch hits on October 15th in the Midwest. If I want to hunt, if I want to hunt a doe bedding area, that's not a bad time as long as I can go ahead and find that dominant doe, that dominant doe group's bedding area. Now, it's getting towards the end of the rut. That's a really nice time again to go ahead and target that that dominant family group doe bedding area because they probably have some doe fawns coming into estrus. In between the early and and also it's not a bad time to go ahead and hit up your least dominant doe groups because they tend to have the most unhealthy does, the ones that tend to come into estrus later. The period in between, flip a coin because you got no clue. But it is a way to just again stack the odds a little bit in your favor in very specific situations. If you happen to be hunting ground that's overpopulated, if you happen to know, observe your deer enough to figure out what your dominant doe groups are. It's not really hard when you watch them. I mean, one, one's chasing the other off that food plot. Odds are the ones running are not the dominant ones. You know, but if you can put all those things together, every once in a while it can't work for you. So just just to make sure I've got this right, to cliff note it, we're talking on keying in on the dominant doe family groups at the early stages of the rut because we're likely going to get that first doe and estrus, and then again towards that second rut time period because those are most likely the groups that have a fawn that's coming into estrus, and then we'll key in on potentially those least dominant doe groups maybe at the later tail end of the rut when those deer are just coming into estrus, and then like you said, during peak breeding, anything. Is that is that right? Did I get it all straight there? That is it in a nutshell. 
you and you did a much finer job of explaining it tonight. <laughs> I, just, I just had to make sure that I had it straight in my head too. Um, but it's it's yeah. fa- it's a fascinating well, it's a fascinating idea, and it makes a lot of sense. Well, I'll tell you what: trying to truly understand what makes the deer tick, to me, there's nothing more fascinating in this world. I know, I know most people would think that's boring as heck. You guys probably don't, and hopefully most of your audience doesn't. But that, to me, is the most fascinating part about all this stuff. And what I keep coming back to over and over and over, the more complicated I try to make this stuff, keep it simple, stupid. They're just animals. <laughs> They're just animals that Mother Nature has hardwired to try to maximize their odds of survival. Um, If you look at it that way, all of a sudden a lot of things start making a lot more sense. Yeah, so true. Continuing on the rut topic, um, another thing that that I've heard you talk about in the past a little bit is how there's this commonly held belief that during the rut, you know, Everything you know about your local deer goes out the window, and it's chaos. But I've heard you talk a little bit about how there is actually, you can sort of pattern deer during the rut, contrary to popular belief. Can you can you elaborate on that? Certainly. The, the first thing I have to say is my definition of patterning is not the same definition of a lot of people that are trying to make themselves look cool. I do not pretend to know what any deer is doing 24-7 period. My idea of patterning a buck or any deer is that I've got a pretty good idea that there's a pretty good chance they might be doing this each day or not necessarily even each day, but on a somewhat regular basis. You know, I, I don't pretend to know where a good number, most of the bucks that I shoot, I don't pretend to know where the heck they bedded. Now, I think there's a pretty good chance it was back on that ridge back there off that point because just about every year I have a good buck betting back there, but I can't, I can't swear to it. I, I'm not, I do not sit there and think that when these people are talking about patterning bucks out there, that they, got, they know what these deer are doing. Baloney. I, I have been, I actually started on the consulting end, consulting for outfitters, and I can't tell you how many times TV crews you know, filmed segments about how they had this buck pattern cold. They knew to set up here because of this, that, and the other thing. And it's really weird because they didn't even know the buck existed until the night before when the outfitter shoot, showed them pictures. <laughs> hey, the, yeah. the, amount, the amount of twisting that goes into what patterning a deer really is it blows, often blows my mind. And it, I, not to sound like too much of a jerk here but quite frankly i think it's ego driven you know look at me i know so much more than everybody else you know well i don't okay what i do is i can figure out that hmm i'm getting this buck's picture here a half hour after dark on a consistent basis now he's coming from this direction He's probably betting over there, and this is part of this food source right now happens to be his primary food source. Now, that to me is patterning a buck. It's not anywhere near as glamorous or or detail detail driven as a lot of people paint it. So, what actually opened my eyes to this is 
over the years, you know, having so many cams out for various clients, you know, every once in a while, you happen to have a doe bedding area that's not that high impact to get into. So you set up a video, so you set up a camera on that scrape that's on the edge of it. And, huh, three, four times a week during the rut, I'm getting this one buck's picture either passing or working that scrape on the downwind side of that doe bedding area. Isn't that a pattern? I'd say so. I mean, he's on, on, on somewhat of a consistent level, he's checking this doe bedding area. Why? Again, keep it simple, stupid. What's, what's a buck trying to do during the rut? He's trying to breed as many does as he can, which isn't that many. But, you know, still, that, that's his mission, to find and breed does and not get killed in the process. If, if you, let me, let me turn this around on you for a second, Mark. You're married, correct? I am. Let's pretend you weren't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, don't answer this question. It is a trap. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yes. But, <laughs> but let's pretend you weren't married. Hey, you are very familiar with the area you live in. Mm-hmm. You desperately, desperately want to find a girlfriend. Okay. Are you going to go ahead to New York to try to find one? Well, I'd, I'd go to New York before the nearest town here, but that's for all sorts of other reasons. <laughs> well, okay, we're pretending you're not married, so your wife's relatives aren't going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what, what a person's going to do more often than not, because, again, as I said, when all this stuff, we're playing odds. We're playing odds and tendencies. That, by definition, means they're exceptions. Every once in a while, Mark is going to head to New York. But for the most part, he's going to go to the areas that he knows their girls at. Yeah. And there's nowhere that he knows that better than in the area he lives. Why is a mature buck going to be any different? And that mature buck, remember, this is their home range is their house and their yard. Okay, They have a darn good idea of what's going on in general in that home range. Could somebody walk through your yard without you knowing? Sure they could. They set up a tent in your yard, though, and you're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So so Mr. Big has a really good idea what the doe groups on within his home range are doing during virtually, I mean, I'm going to say during any time during the 24-hour period. I don't mean he knows every second of that 24-hour period where that one doe is, but he knows that during the daylight hours, odds are pretty high that she's going to be back at, his, at her bedding area. So if he's going to go ahead and try to maximize his breeding opportunities, doesn't it make sense for A, for him to stay home? Because he knows where these girls are here. He's the domin- He's either the dominant buck or probably, if he's mature, one of the dom- more dominant bucks on the property on most grounds. Okay. So he doesn't have to worry overly much about people stealing his girls. And he knows where they are. Where odds are the highest, where they'll be during the daylight, where they'll be in early morning, where they'll be in early after, in late, early evening, right before dark. You know, he has a pretty darn good idea where they're going to be after dark. So, doesn't it make sense for him to check those locations when he's not with a doe? And if it does, isn't that him following a pattern? Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I can tell you that. From personal experience, 
there are a, I, I would say over 50% of the, I'll say right around 50% of the mature bucks on the various properties I manage for clients. Um, part of what they pay me for is to learn as much about what they're doing as possible so they can take advantage of that hunting. Um, I'd say right around half of them, if they have a pattern outside the rut, or early season, if they have a pattern, I don't know what the heck it is. I, I can't figure it out. During the rut, a pretty decent percent of those bucks that I can't figure out outside the rut, all of a sudden their actions make all the sense in the world and are pretty darn predictable. In some regards, in some regards, as long as you use the loose definition of patterning that I do, um, I'll tell you what, it's easier to pattern a lot of bucks during the rut than it is outside of it. Yeah. yeah because I, you know exactly what they're after and you know where they're going to be. Right. Right. I think it comes down to, like you said, maybe how people are defining it because, I mean, so many people talk about, well, I'm going to focus on this bedding area because I know bucks are going to be, you know, checking it for does. Well, you're saying that you are hypothesizing that a buck is going to be visiting this area based on past experience or based on what you know. So essentially that, you know, you are basing this decision on what you believe to be a pattern. Just people aren't calling it that, um, but, but there really is something to it. Or, and with those people you just described, what they don't realize is they just pattern that. I mean, if they know there's this 140-inch you know, 8-point, which I'll tell you what, if you get a 140-inch 8-point, that's a pretty darn good buck. <laughs> yeah. I don't care who you are. Um, but they know they have a 140-inch 8-point that spends some time on this property, and they're actually going back there to set up on that doe bedding area, hoping he'll come by. Well, when he comes by and they kill him, they had that buck pattern better than I, I'm going to venture to say at least 90% of the quote unquote experts that are talking about patterning deer. Yeah. Yeah. D Dan, whoa. What do you got next? Do you think when it, when it comes to these, you know, all the, all these does, um, do you think that people should be paying more attention to where does are, let's say in late October, as opposed to where buck sign is popping up. I think you better be paying at least as much attention to it. I, that, that's a great question. I, I well, let me, this will probably put in to perspective my thoughts on does when I'm laying out improvements for, uh, on, for my clients on private ground and we're talking bedding I never mess around with buck beds I'm focusing on doe bedding because if I know where they are I'm going to know where Mr. Big is where I can kill Mr. Big during the rut you know, I, I, I think that you I think a person does get a bad rap frankly from us hunters they're looked at by too many I think they're looked at as nothing but pests I'll tell you what, those does, especially the ones that are living, that have daylight core areas on your ground, they're your best friends. Because they're telling, they are dictating what Mr. Big is going to do, as long as he's not with a doe. Another getting off on a little, I'm going to go so far as to say almost useless deer trivia. <laughs> something that, something that I believe. That everybody talks about how does are are leading bucks around during the rut. 
when you're talking about a mature buck, once he's corralled her, I do not have a shred of doubt in my mind whatsoever that she's not the one dictating movements to her, to him. He's dictating her movements. He's pushing. He's the one who, in Iowa, is pushing her out in the middle of that pick cornfield. She doesn't want to be there. He wants her there because he can see any type of competition coming up to try to steal her away. um, I've actually, one of of the bucks I'm looking at that's hanging on my wall as we speak, you know, was, you know, corralled a doe, and she wanted to go up the point. He wanted, thankfully, he wanted to get a drink of water. I watched her go around her three different times, tying her in the side and push her down to that water hole. Wow which I was very thankful for because my stand was covering that water. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of um, of this idea, you know, we just talked a little bit about understanding what these bucks are going to do during the rut and, you know, understanding what Mr. Big wants is the dough and everything like that. brings me back to this whole idea, uh, and I've heard you mention this, this phrase I've heard you say a lot, quote-unquote, listening to Mr. Big. And I think, you know, what that means is, is how to pick up the clues that these bucks are giving us. You know, like you said, a buck, you know, occasionally these bucks are jumping up and down, waving their arms, saying, kill me. How do we get better at listening to Mr. Big? I guess, what do you mean by that, and how do we get better at doing that? Well, I think it, I think it really starts by just asking yourself, by first understanding the rut cycle. I mean, you've got early season, you've got what is kind of a misnomer in the October lull. What that really is more than anything is based off of pressure. You know, we're a lot of a lot of bow seasons either start middle of September or October first, so the woods goes from you know being relatively peaceful. I mean, well, let's face it, it's not that much fun being out in the woods going for a walk in August. You know, just for the heck of it. You know, because well, there's a lot of bugs out there, a lot of bugs and a lot of thorns that like to scratch you. Um, and you can't, and it's hot and sweaty and gross. So for most of summer and early, or late summer, these bucks, they're, they're left pretty much alone. These deer are left alone out there. Now all of a sudden, bow season starts and you got all us yard apes running around the woods. Now, that tends to push bucks a little bit more nocturnal because their testosterone levels are low. All they're trying to do is fatten up for the rut. You know, I don't have a reason I have to move a lot, so if I get pressure, I'm not going to I'm going to move even less. Okay. Then you get into the scrape phase. You know, the scrape phase of season. What are bucks trying to do? Well, they're advertising their presence. They're advertising their presence partially to does, but mainly to other bucks. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make it so that when he find when Mr. Big finds that doe, a couple weeks later in in November, and along comes along comes his nearest competitor. He's already sent a message to him: "Don't mess with me, buddy. I am at the top of the food chain, and I will hand you your butt on a platter." Because he doesn't want to fight. He really, I, I really firmly believe. The longer I do this, the more firmly I believe that mature bucks, they honest most of them. There's going to be exceptions. There's always that one guy in the crowd that wants to fight anybody over anything. <laughs> But the majority of them, they don't want to because that is, man, that is nasty stuff. You know, if you ever really want to get an idea of how much force is expended when two mature bucks go at it, 
just go ahead and take take some three and a half year old shed you found one year. Try to break off a tine. The amount, and this is I'm talking about just on a three and a half year old buck. You know, snapping a tine off at the main beam is not easy. It takes a tremendous amount of force. Now take that four and a half, five and a half year old buck, yeah. and imagine what it takes to break that entire that entire beam, his right or left beam off of his head. You know, the amount of force. It's like going it's like going ten rounds with with Mike Tyson. You know, I don't care if you win, you lost. <laughs> yeah. Because he hit you and it really hurt. And now you're going into the breeding season where you're gonna if you're a mature buck, you're gonna average losing anywhere from twenty five to thirty percent body weight. And as soon as the breeding season's over, guess what? You're in winter. And even in even in a Missouri or a Iowa or a Kansas that's the seasonal low point for food. So now I've got to go ahead and try to recoup my body during the during the hardest point there is that na- that nature throws at me. Okay. By going through the right cycle and understanding it, ask yourself what is it that Mr. Big wants during that time? You know, early season October lolly wants to be left alone and fattened up for the rut. You know, during the peak scrape phase he wants to advertise 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 stake out his his notch in the buck hierarchy okay. then you get into the breeding season itself what does he want he wants breeding opportunities after the breeding phase is over what does he want he wants food he wants food to try to recoup his body you know when you when you grasp that concept then all you have to do is ask yourself what does mr big want today he wants food. Okay, what's my best food source that's closest to where I've been getting his pictures or where I've seen him or where I've seen his sign? Okay, that's it there. Well, kind of telling me that that's probably where I should hunt today, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I mean by, you know, listening to Mr. Big. You know, and the other the other big way is okay. So, and this is where information overload can kind of get you in trouble. So we know we know that the best odds of killing a buck on a scrape is to wait to that last week, that last week of peak scrape phase because his testosterone level is skyrocketing. Then, you know, and by waiting, we haven't given any clues that he's in danger working that scrape. But now all we do is slip up in the stand, and our odds are best to kill him. And, yep, that's what I should be hunting. I should be hunting that scrape that's back by that doe bedding area in an area he feels safe. But I just swapped chips, and, man, in the last two weeks, I've got the buck's picture that I want to kill four times, or, hey, let's say five times, during legal shooting hours out on that alfalfa field. Well, I'm going to listen to him, and I'm going to go hunt that alfalfa field. You know, even though that's not the best place to be, supposedly. We're peak scrape. He's all about right now. He's all about advertising his presence and all that stuff. But he's telling me that, geez, these four pitch, four or five pitchers in a 14-day period during legal shooting light, that's good odds. He's telling me to go over there and kill him. So I'm going to, I'm going to listen even though 
even though my own general philosophy is telling me that's not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be. Or, well, let's make this even better. It's during the rut. It's during peak breeding phase, and there he is out in the middle of that, that alfalfa field, you know, eating day after day. Well, I don't care that he's supposed to be chasing does. He's telling me that's where i got to be, and I'm going to listen. So you mentioned there another topic that I want to touch on that kind of naturally transitions, I think, perfectly here. If we're listening to Mr. Big, if we're paying attention to these different tendencies, whether it's observed or it's based on what we understand about what deer typically are doing that year or that time of year, I think the next most important decision is not necessarily, well, first you need to know where, but next is when do I strike? this idea of when's the right time to go in there because I think you know as you've alluded several times it's really important to keep the pressure low so they are there and present and moving normally and then strike when the time's right so this is something we always we like to talk about this with a lot of our different guests and I'm always curious to hear each different person's perspective on which factors they pay attention to the most you know do they really pay attention to temperature or barometric pressure or moon or all these different things to help them decide when to strike. Can you tell us what factors matter to you? How do you make that decision? The primary, the, the factor that's going to trump everything for me every single time is any type of pi- pictures or visual sightings. If I'm see, if I'm seeing, I, I don't care. Here, here's a good example. Um, a buck that I killed, I don't know, probably four years ago now. Firearm season had just ended. Okay. Um, I'm doing a I'm doing a camera swap, a chip swap here in the morning of the day after firearm season. Mature bucks are not supposed to be moving during daylight now. You know, they just went through the war. But one of the cams that I swapped, it's got uh, it's got pictures in the last uh, eh, we'll say last 10 days it had pictures of one mature buck out in at six different times during legal shooting light including the day before man I'm going I, I went ahead and as soon as I saw that I threw a ladder stand in the back of the truck I went and set it up and I and here it is the day after this is in Illinois um, the day after second shotgun season which puts us in December it is 80 some degrees with a 30-mile-an-hour wind, you're not supposed to kill a buck on, <laughs> in situations like that on an open clover field. No. It's not supposed to happen. But I didn't tell him that when he came out a half hour before dark and I shot him. <laughs> you know, if, if visual observations or trail cameras are telling you something, that trumps everything for me every single time. You know, after that, it's matching the phase of season with what they want and what stands do I have that are ideally suited for that phase of season. Okay. If it's a crappy weather day, you know, it's hot, it's windy, like the day that I killed that buck, that he should not have been out there. You know, and he was a, a five-and-a-half-year-old buck. You know, um, <clears throat> but if I don't have recon like that, if it's a crappy weather day, I'm going to hunt a low-impact stand, one that I believe offers me a chance, but one that I also am not overly worried about messing things up on. I can get in. I can get out. I'm not going to disturb anything, 
perception is reality for both humans and for deer. If they don't perceive you're hunting them, you're not. Okay, so if I can pull that off, that's where I'm going to go on a crappy hunting weather day. And I'm going to save my higher impact stands for those days where, okay, it's been, you know, in the here it is November, it's been in the 40s, 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 and today it's a high of 24 degrees with, you know, a 5 to 10 mile an hour wind. Now is when I'm going into those higher impact stands, you know, because that fit that phase of season. Because the stand location matches what he wants, and the weather is telling him to get up and move. And just it's all, it all just keeps. No, oh, excuse me. It all just keeps going back to stacking the odds for me. What about some of these specifics? Um, you mentioned the cold front there. What about mm -hmm. pressure? Do you pay attention to barometric pressure? I don't pay a heck of a lot of attention to barometric pressure just because I don't have a barometer. Fair enough. <laughs> I do think that I do think that uh, um, I think it was deer and deer hunting. As I don't think they did the study, but but at least four or five times they've done over the years they've done articles on barometric pressure. Without a doubt, seems to be one of the biggest keys to getting bucks up on their feet and moving. Yeah. You know, when, and you're going to make me look silly now because <laughs> I can't remember what that range is. <laughs> but there is that range out there where barometric pressure gets bucks up and moving. But it also happens to uh, happens to be associated. The barometric pressure happens to be associated with shifting fronts. Mm -hmm. So when you get that cold snap, you're doing it by default frankly right right now what about the moon then you mentioned that you don't believe the moon has any influence on the timing of the rut but do you think anything related to the moon influences just time of movement during the day you know there's been it's been said so many times that on full moons afternoons stink but mornings and midday is great that i tend to believe there's something to it but i'll be brutally honest with you i've never noticed a difference do you think do you think that those particular um, events like rising barometer and moon phase should be important to a hunter that may not have like a, a lot of time throughout the season to hunt they're they're more of a I can hunt when it's time type of scenario I, I think that you just absolutely hit a home run with your statement in that what I think is that barometric pressure, moon, weather, all that type of stuff sounds great for people like me who, I mean, I, well, let's face it, none of us can really hunt any darn time we want to, but some of us get a lot closer to that than others. You know, um, I'm guessing, I'm guessing you two get to hunt a lot more than a lot of your buddies do. Because it's part of your job. Well, you know. Dan, Dan, maybe not, but sorry, continue. <laughs> okay. Well, not counting Dan, Mark, yes, yes. you get to hunt more That's, than yes. most of your buddies. You know, so for somebody like you, somebody like me, it makes a lot more makes a lot more sense to pay attention to barometric pressure. It wasn't that long ago where I actually had a real job, and I had two weeks vacation that I'd save up. Every year, I 
worked my way up so I had three weeks total. I actually, being the being the gracious person that I was, saved a week for the family and set aside two weeks for myself. <laughs> um, and yes, I am making fun of myself. That was stupid <laughs> back then. But, you know, um, and actually it might be part of the reason why she's my ex-wife. Uh, but <laughs> well, anyway. There you go. <laughs> there, there's, your big, there's the big lesson of the day, folks. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to pretend it was all her. <laughs> you know, Fair enough. Um, but, but, you know, when you're doing that, you don't, I, it's great that you know that, that when the barometric pressure is in this range right here, that's when deer are moving the most. But man, you took a week's worth of vacation and, are you going to sit at home or in the cabin because the barometric pressure isn't right? You can't afford to. You're going to go out and hunt. The reason that I think it's it's a little bit important for the for most quote unquote normal hunters is because I'm not going to head to the best highest impact stand location I have when it's 20 degrees above normal and it's a 25 mile an hour wind. I'm going to go for a lower impact stand and hope to catch a break. But I'm going to save that higher impact stand for later in the week when the weather shifts. And now all of a sudden, at least the temperature's down to normal. And we're dealing with a 10 to 15 mile an hour wind instead of, you know, real high temps and a 25 mile an hour. That's how I, that's how I would factor, well, heck, it's, that's how I factor to this day where I hunt based on those types of things. But I'll tell you what, when you got a limited number of days, you're going to hunt. And if you're not, you're probably not all that ate up by hunting to begin with. Yeah, good point. Speaking of stands, um, and kind of pivoting here a little bit, but another somewhat counterintuitive thing I've, I've heard you say, or at least something that maybe goes against some popular advice, um, is the idea of overhunting stands. But how that can be a good thing at times if it's the right stand or time. Can you talk to me to talk, talk to us about how you learned this lesson about the importance of overhunting hot stands? Oh, the how I learned it is just yet another one in a long line of failures, um, <laughs> which I'm very I'm I'm great at failing, and I figure if you're going to fail, fail gloriously or don't bother. Oh yeah, but um, <laughs> but there was a. Uh, uh, this was way back when I was consulting for an outfitter. I'd put in a soybean plot real late. Um, and here it is, early September. I've got a 184-inch buck that's bachelor grouped up with a couple year-and-a-half-old bucks. They're head- hitting these soybeans on a daily basis, and you know darn well that's exactly where I am on opening day. I'm up there, and oh, sucky, there he is. There he is, but, oh, he got spooked off. Um, just by, it was nothing big. It was just by some deer running around. Okay. Well, man, I got I got to give this stand four days off now because I just hunted it and you, you got to keep your impact low. So now, uh, five days later, I'm back up in that exact same stand. There he is again. He's coming close. He is dead. I mean, man, this is an hour before dark and he keeps feeding closer and closer and closer. He's at 50 yards right now. I could take that shot, but dang it. You know, I, I'll be more comfortable at 30 yards. 
um, as a side note, I practice out to 100 yards just so that I can when everything is perfect. I mean, here he is, broadside, head down, eating, that I can take that 50-yard shot. Um, but this is so gift-wrapped. Man, let him come. And sure enough, he's working into 40 yards. I'm getting ready, and all of a sudden, something in the woods catches his attention, and he's staring and staring and staring. Man, if he was only broadside now, I'd be letting that arrow fly. But he's not. He's quartered to me, and he takes off running, and out comes a three-and-a-half-year-old buck. Now, he actually spooked from you know, him making a rub back in the woods. All right, got to give it another five-day break before I go back in. Well, I show up, and now the soybeans are all yellowing. That was so incredibly stupid. Because Mr. Big is no longer coming to that food source. Because the, the soybean leaves are no longer green, now they're yellow. He doesn't want them anymore. Buck patterns are, using my definition of patterning, are rarely, rarely stable for long periods of time overseas. So when a buck is telling you, again, going back to uh, going back to jumping up and down, waving his arms, screaming, hey, kill me, you idiot, you know, don't sit there and wait for five days before you go back in there again. I mean, I, I sincerely believe that if I would have hunted that stand every day until I killed him, I would have killed him. You know, but instead of having a couple weeks, Worth of sh- or instead of having just shy of a couple weeks' worth of opportunities to hunt, what is a buck of a lifetime for me? You know, I took a handful, I took three shots at it. You know, I limited my own, I limited the number of opportunities I had at that deer. And it was actually the outfitter I was consulting for at the time, uh, Tom Inderbow, one of, one of the the premier whitetail mines out there as far as I'm concerned when you're talking hunters. as He's the one who drilled into my head, Steve, you're blowing it. You keep hunting, you know he's going to change. So you keep hunting that buck until you either spook him or you kill him, one of the two. And in those types of situations, I think he was 100% right and have done it that way ever since and have killed a handful of bucks that I don't believe I would have killed otherwise. So really what it amounts to is when you're when they're hunting when they're hitting a food source that you know is seasonal. You know, I, I know that soybeans those soybeans are seasonal. As soon as those things start to turn, they're gonna lay off them again until after they've completely dried out dried out and hardened. Then they'll go be hitting it again. A situation like that, you hunt that stand as often as you can while that while those soybean leaves are green. When that buck is coming out, <clears throat> when that buck is coming out to that brassic plot on a regular basis during during legal shooting light, but it's just that half acre brassic plot. You got a ton of deer hammering. Wow, this food is going fast. You hunt it while you can, because when it's gone, he's not going to be there anymore. He's still probably, hopefully, going to be on the property, but he's not going to be there. And the key is is being able to get in hunt and get out without them knowing you're there as long as they do not know you're there you're not what if this was a high impact stand though what if the spot that you were seeing this great action on that you know that this is where they're going to be at what if that is a high impact spot do you still 
risk it and go in there because you know that the odds are, you know, disproportionately high at this time and they won't be there in the future? Or do you change your perspective a little bit? Am I, do I control this ground or is somebody else? Uh, let's just hypothetically say it's, well, can you, can you say on either or, if it's by permission or on your own? Because I'd be curious to hear how you would approach that differently with each. If this is, if this is ground that I control myself and my goals, my goals on the ground I control, I don't own any, it's clients. Somehow, there's an old saying, God looks out for children and fools. I have an add-on that I slap on the end. I've obviously got the back end covered because I have some opportunities that are in- incredible. If I and when I have those opportunities, what I'm trying to do for the clients is it's actually split between trying to kill deer and trying to raise them. If raising deer is important to me on this ground, I'm going to be much lower impact because killing them is only half the battle for me. The other half is raising them. And if I'm spooking them too, if they're hammering this area right now on my ground, that means they aren't over on the neighbors. So there, what I'd probably do is I'd, I'd pick my spot, my shots a little bit more selectively because I don't want them. If I spook these deer off this food source right now, they're safe as if they're in their mama's arms because they're heading here on the ground that I manage during legal shooting light. So that, that absolute stud three-and-a-half-year-old that I'm trying to get one more year, or that stud two-and-a-half-year-old that I'm trying to get one more year on, He's every bit as important to me in that situation as the buck I'm trying to kill. In that situation, I'm probably not going to hunt it night after night after night, but I still am going to push it a little bit harder. I'm going to push it until I get busted that first time, then I'm going to back off. I'm going to back off, and I'm going to give them a chance to... I'm not going to push it hard. I'm going to push it... I'm going to try to make sure I don't push it so hard that they, they change their pattern because their patterns are working for me. If this happens to be my my neighbor's ground who is nice enough to give me permission to hunt it, I'm going to hunt that location over and over and over and over and over until they stop using it. Interesting. But, but this goes back to what you were saying about pushing the envelope a little bit. In my mind, pushing the envelope is having multiple spots to hunt. So if I blow this here, I still got the public land over there, I got the public land over there, and I've got another another piece of ground that I was able to trade some uh, trade some work for hunting rights over there as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that most people, in my opinion, are way too willing to settle for hunting that one spot. I want to have other options. Because if I have other options, that means that A, I don't have to pound, <clears throat> Um, I don't have to pound properties when things aren't going well. Hunting more isn't going to improve it. Okay. Um, by not going well, I mean you're not seeing squat for deer or anything close to what you want to kill for a deer. If that's happening, I don't want to hunt that property even harder because, one, obviously it's telling me that if I got mature bucks here that I want to kill, they're not cooperating with me right now. So let's give them a chance to cooperate or they're not there at all kind of hard to, to hunt something that's not there. Well, it's easy to hunt something that's not there, but it's real tough to kill them. Um, but ha- having those extra options 
virtually anybody who's got a driver's license, even in Illinois, Illinois gets, if I recall correctly, you guys are from Illinois, are you not? Uh, Dan's in Iowa. I'm in, actually in Michigan. Okay, well, I was completely wrong on that one. <laughs> That's okay. Happens <laughs> <laughs> to the best of us. Um, uh, Iowa has a decent amount of public ground. Um, Michigan... Michigan, the UP's got a ton. I'm not really familiar with the lower peninsula that much as far as how much ground is available. But most most of your listeners, if they're willing to drive a half hour, 45 minutes, odds are they can get into public ground hunting. And public ground hunting really gets a bad rap. You know, it does. I mean, I'm not pretending for a sec. I am very lucky in that I get to hunt Utopia and I get to hunt what is viewed by the hunters of the world is a scourge of hunting ground, public ground. Um, I'm not going to pretend that hunting public ground is anywhere near as easy as hunting utopia because it's not. But more often than not, public ground's got some bucks on it that you'd be more than happy to drag out. And that gives me places to head when things aren't so great. Hopefully I answered your question in there somewhere. I can't even, I'll be honest with you, I got off on so many tangents, I can't remember what it was. Anymore. You're the king of tangents. Thank you. No, but they're, they're good, though. That's a compliment. Said, if you're going to fail, <laughs> fail gloriously or don't bother. <laughs> no, this is, uh, this is, I could talk about these types of things with you for, for hours. That I, re- I really enjoy your perspective on a lot of these things, and a lot of things you say resonate with me a lot because it, it's very much in I'm not sure if it's just because it's so in line with what I believe or because just what I believe so much of it comes from you I'm not sure which came first but um you mind you mind if I make myself look like a colossal jerk here for a second please do the, the re- <laughs> thank you <laughs> finally someone making us look good Mark. yeah this is a, this is a nice for change <laughs> you there's there's a reason I like and respect you guys. Because you're in this industry and you actually hunt. You have to know as well as I do, the majority of the people in this industry that are quote-unquote experts, by our definition, they don't hunt. Mm-hmm. They kill stuff. Yeah. You know, and when you go when you go from and there's there's nothing wrong with this. I don't this is not sour grapes or anything. You know what? God loves the people that are able to do this for a living and that that genuinely enjoy it. But when you go from guided hunt to guided hunt to guided hunt to guided hunt to guided hunt and the only payments these outfitters are receiving is publicity. So what they tend to do is they tend to save that one area where that good buck is coming out on. You know, they tend, not all of them, but a good percent tend to save that area for their quote-unquote expert who's coming in. All they do is climb up a stand and kill something. Well, you know what, that's, you, you come, it's really easy to jump to all sorts of conclusions that aren't very accurate in the real world. The other, the other scenario that happens quite a bit is, I'm, as I just got done saying, you know, God looks out for children and fools, and I got the back end covered. <laughs> there, I've been very lucky to manage now five very large properties over the years where these guys, they, they go ahead and they give me budgets that are beyond what most people would think are sane, and just go ahead and set this up to make it the very best deer hunting property you can. 
when you're hunting on properties like that, when they start hitting, when they really start hitting their stride, it's hard to look stupid. It is. I mean, the, the things that work for you there, you try that stuff on your uncle's farm. You try that stuff on public ground. Man, are you going to look real stupid real fast. Mm-hmm. When, when you don't ever hunt those types of scenarios, it's hard not to believe your own press clippings. It's hard to believe that, you know what, taking two taking two carbon arrows and tapping them together to sound like rattling antlers really isn't the greatest thing in the world to try to do on that <laughs> uncle's property because it's probably not going to work. But it works a lot better when you're dealing with a Pope and Young buck for every 40 acres. And you're talking about a 5,000-acre property. You know, chances are one of those one of those Pope and Young bucks are going to walk by you whether it had anything to do with you clicking those antlers, those two carbon arrows together or not, comes real easy to jump to all sorts of conclusions that just don't add up. And that's why I'm, I, I'm, it's not an accident that I still hunt public ground. It, part of it's quite honestly an ego trip. I shouldn't say this, but <laughs> you kill a three and a half year old buck. I don't care if it's a hundred inches. When I drag a three-and-a-half-year-old buck off of public ground, I feel like I did something. I mean, it, it's a source of pride, and it helps it helps hone my skills. But at the same time, as I said, I know this makes me sound like a colossal jerk, but I cannot for the life of me understand how people themselves can stand up, whether it's in front of a TV camera, whether it's in front of an audience at a deer show, or if it's in a magazine and tell normal hunters how they should hunt when you never, ever hunt like that normal hunter does. Mm-hmm. That's quite honestly why I think that the three of us can relate to each other so well. <laughs> We're three hunters. Yeah. We're not three killers. Yeah, and I, and I agree with everything you're saying there. And on top of all that, I think what we're doing is a whole lot more fun. Like actually God, dealing God. with the challenge and really having to learn these deer and really putting in the work that's a lot more fun and fulfilling than ever just climbing up a tree stand and killing something that, you know, someone told me would be there. I just, I personally, and like you said, there's nothing wrong with it, you know, to each their no. own, but that just doesn't do it for me. Um, I'm, no, I, I, I hunt for the hunt. I can honestly say I've never went on a guided hunt in my life. Not because, as I said, I, I cut my teeth on the consulting, actually consulting for outfitters. God love people that go on guided hunts. There's absolutely, positively nothing wrong with that in any way, shape, or form. But the thrill isn't there for me. Yeah. I, I, I don't wait. To me, I mean, I know this sounds cool and all that stuff, but no BS. To me, killing a deer is not the rush. The rush is somehow figuring it out well enough that I can be within shooting range of that mature deer and he doesn't know I'm there. Yeah. That, to me, is the rush. To me, the rush is, geez, it must be 10 years ago now when I thought I might have figured out something about dominant family group, dominant doe groups. And then spending the next, you know, six, seven years trying to prove it wrong and not being able to prove it wrong. You know, I just figured something. That is the rush in this stuff for me. Figuring yeah. out those little things, putting together the jigsaw puzzle that every one of these properties are, 
whether it's public ground or private ground, and figuring out the picture it paints that gives you the best odds of killing Mr. Big. That is the rush. Yes. Killing the deer is, there's, obviously, I don't think there's anything wrong with killing deer, and frankly, I always look forward to the seasons where my clients have too many does, and I've got to kill a bunch of does, because I, this isn't politically correct, but I really like killing deer, especially <laughs> when I can go ahead and donate the extra venison that I won't be using to feed hungry people and actually get to pretend I'm doing something good in this world for <laughs> once. Yeah. You know, um, that's fun. That's that's what drives me on this type of stuff. Yeah. That and, quite honestly, habitat improvements where I'm trying to get a deer to do this, and wow, can you believe it, he just did. Wow, isn't that the coolest darn thing you ever saw? He was doing that, and I now have him do this. Yeah. It's just those stupid things that I get off on. Yeah, no, I think you're among kindred spirits here. Me and, me and Dan are very much in the same boat as you and uh and man i i I gotta believe that most of our listeners probably can relate to a lot of this too but as much as i hate to say this steve we have got to wrap this conversation up we've we've probably taken more time than than you were expecting so thank you for that i i um, you can tell i don't i i love talking about this type of stuff especially when it's with people like you guys yeah you you guys too if this if this and the last interview was beneficial to your audience in any way, shape, or form, you are, you guys are the ones that deserve the credit because you, you know better than I do. I'm not a good interview. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> you're great. <laughs> I've, I've no, I mean, thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, and you guys, you guys, yeah, I it, it is my pleasure, and you guys better be proud as heck of what you built there because I, I you deserve to. Well, thank you. We really appreciate that. I guess you know, we'll, if we want to continue throwing compliments, I'll, I'll throw one more your way, <laughs> really quickly, and just say that to the point I made earlier, your books are terrific. I own two of them. I haven't read the Habitat yet, but I'm definitely going to. I real quick want to give you an opportunity to let our audience know where where should they go to find those books because I think they definitely should try to give them a read if they can. Um, if. If they want to get them the cheapest they can, they should just go to Amazon. I kid the the dirty little secrets. One of the dirty little secrets about writing books is the Amazons of the world can get them cheaper than the author can. Um, so any if you just do a search on my name on Amazon, you'll come up with all four of them. Otherwise, if a person wanted an autograph copy, uh, www dad dot food-plots-4-deer.com minus signs between each one of those words. You can buy any of them there, and I'd be more than happy to sign them. But I'm telling telling your audience right up front, you can get them all, all cheaper straight from Amazon. You throw in a $50 charge for your autograph, though, right? <laughs> I... If I did, my book sales would be far worse. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. Uh, people don't. Some people that order the books, it has absolute from me directly has absolutely nothing to do with wanting a signature. They have no idea they're even going to get one, and I'm surprised I haven't gotten books back asking for a refund. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, Steve, this this has been great. We really appreciate you joining us and sharing your perspective on everything. And uh, hopefully, 
we can stay in touch over the coming months, and we'll have some great stories to share from another successful hunting season for you. Sounds great, gentlemen. All right, thank and you, Steve. if you don't mind, I just want to thank your audience. Um, yes. I, I, I couldn't do what I do without them, and that's not lost on me for a second. And to say I appreciate it just seems to be not doing it any kind of justice whatsoever. But trust me, it is not lost on me how incredibly blessed I am to do what I do, and I 100% owe that to your audience. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Both both Dan and I, too, we, we appreciate everyone listening. And, uh, man, this is good stuff, Steve. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. All right. Well, I have one more piece of advice for you today now that we're wrapping this up. And that is to go back and listen to this entire conversation with Steve again because there was just so much valuable information, I think, packed into this one. I think there are so many things that you can take away from this and apply to your own hunting season and you will see better success. Listen to it again. There's a lot to digest. I'm going to do the same and I hope you really enjoy this one and found it as valuable as I did. Now, real quick before we shut this down, we need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And with all that said, thank you as well for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Appreciate you spending this couple hours with us talking deer. And hopefully you found this as educational and interesting as I did. And finally, of course, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.